11. Tonight we're going to talk about the Tower of Babel. Have you all ever read this passage before? Anybody in here? Yeah? I bet, I bet Miss Alice has probably taught this before in children's Sunday school and probably done it very well. Speaking of children, it was interesting. When I was a little boy, <clears throat> um, my dad, um, growing up, my dad was a woodworker. He worked at John Deere, and then as a hobby, he was a brilliant woodworker. Uh, he built a, an oak um, railing that went all the way down our staircase um, in our home. It was beautiful. Uh, he built gun cabinets and, and dressers and all kinds of stuff. Whatever that man touched that was made out of wood, it became something beautiful. Uh, which makes you think that when he would give me instruction about working with wood that I would listen to it. Well, you would be wrong. So I used to love to go down in my dad's workshop, which was locked under, uh, you know, lock and key throughout the day because he had all kinds of really dangerous power tools in there. Um, but when dad was down there in the evenings, I was allowed to go down and work on projects and kind of watch what he was doing. And it was a nice time for us to spend together. And uh, that particular night he was working on something and, and I wanted to work on something. So he gave me some scrap wood pieces and I was going to build, I think, a little like mini little um, stool or like maybe a house or something small like a box and he gave me all this stuff and said all right and so I started working on it and it wasn't doing real well so dad came back and saw I was struggling so he said here let me tell you what to do he said first you gotta cut this and then pre-drill these holes and then you're gonna screw the screws in and make sure to measure it right so it sits correctly and he got about halfway through all of instruction and because I was such an expert at woodworking by the age of eight, um, I told him that I didn't want him to help me. I know that's crazy, right? What do you think I told him? I want to do it myself. Miss Alice knows what I'm talking about. And so he kind of chuckled a little bit and said, oh, okay, sure. So here you go. So he gave, he let me do it myself. And uh, he went on with his project. And wouldn't you know, at the end of the night, he, I brought, he said, bring your bring your wood project to me and show me what you've made. And so I bring it to him, and it's all like, like a skew, and, and it doesn't stand up right, and the whole thing wobbles because I didn't support it correctly, and the, the screws are half screwed in because I stripped them out. All this stuff, it was just terrible, the whole project. And um, Dad said, you know, if you would have listened to me and followed my directions, um, you would have had something better that would have lasted. And, um, you know, I learned a lesson that night, you know, to listen to my dad, because when he gives me instruction, he knows what he's talking about. Well, that applies to our lives today and in our relationship with God, our Father. Well, we're going to learn about the, the text that we're studying tonight in Genesis chapter 11, is that when we stray from the Lord's plan and path for our lives, the final product will demonstrate the fruitlessness of our deviation from God's perfect plan for our lives. The question is, what is the difference between godly and ungodly ambition? Because that's what is at the heart of the Tower of Babel. At the heart of the Tower of Babel is the question, what is the difference between godly and ungodly ambition? 
Let me read what Matthews writes to us. He says, The story provides a striking contrast between human opinion of its self-achievements and God's viewpoint of such endeavors. Human cooperation, when it is fueled by autonomy and directed toward self-interest, is shown by the story to be shallow, impotent hubris. How do we know if our ambition is godly or ungodly? Well, the answer to that question lies in our motives. We should ask questions like these. What is the motive behind my plan? Meaning, why do I want to do this? Well, we often search after the will of God, trying to decide, does God want me to do this or this? Or, or should I do this or not? At the heart of that, we are asking ourselves, what is my motive? Why do I want to do this? Will this bring glory to God or to me or somebody else? That's the question that we're going to answer tonight. That's what I think the people of Babel will teach us. So, look to Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. First, we're going to see in the, in the first two verses, is all of humanity as one united people. Verse 1 says, Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. Well, let's just stop for a minute and reflect on what that would be like. What would it be like if everyone on this earth was gathered in one place and we all spoke the same language? That would be pretty amazing right? We were, I'm going to tell you a story that Alethea might be a little embarrassed by, but I know you all find the humor. I find humor in this as someone from the Midwest, since you all probably think I have a funny accent. Um, we were coming out of a store, and a guy was walking in the store, and he was, I feel very confident that he was from Georgia. He had a deep, deep southern accent, and he was happy, and he was talking with his family or his friends really, really fast. And we walked by, and Alethe goes, I have no idea what that guy just said. I have no idea. I heard him talking, but it made no sense to me. And I'm sure sometimes maybe you all feel like I do that. But imagine what it would be like to be in a place where you would perfectly understand everybody all the time, where the word would mean the same to you as you. Every word would be the same. Imagine what that would be like. The Babel settlement described here takes place somewhere within the genealogical list presented in chapter 10. Remember the table of nations? We went over that a couple weeks ago. Somewhere inside the table of nations before all of humanity dispersed and started to uh, grow and fill up the earth, they were all gathered in this place. The Babel dispersion, which is described here in verse 11, or chapter 11, probably took place somewhere or sometime during the life of Peleg, um, which Genesis describes in 1025. Um, this is what it says. Two sons were born to Eber. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. So we think during Peleg's time, if we interpret that verse as meaning when the earth was divided, meaning humanity spread out, it was probably during this time that, our, uh, that Moses writes about here in Genesis chapter 11. Let's continue in verse 2 of chapter 11. It came about as they journeyed east, so all of humanity is journeying and moving to the east, that they found a plain 
in the land of Shinar and settled there. So these are God's people, unified under one common language, settling in one place, this land called Shinar. Now, verse 4, which we'll read about in a minute, indicates that they feared being scattered over the face of the earth, and so they settled together in Shinar after traveling eastward. Shinar was a plain in Mesopotamia. So, in modern terms, think eastern Iraq, where the Tigris and Euphrates River flow. It was a fertile, beautiful place to settle. In fact, scholars believe that was one of the most beautiful, fruitful places in the world at that time. And that's probably why they settled there. It was easy to grow crops. It was a nice place to settle. It was a beautiful, fertile plain. This region, turns out, uh, Mesopotamia, this region here, is the epicenter of some of the most powerful nations in the Old Testament. Matthews writes again, At chapter 10, verse 10, the cities located in the land of Shinar are Babylon, Erech, Akkad, Kalna. Shinar refers to the region Babylonia. Have we heard of that nation? It's sometimes translated Babylon or Babylonia. It was also an area known in antiquity as the Mesopotamian region of Sumner and Akkad. One of the eastern kings of this area that Abraham defeated was in Shinar. Other places in the Old Testament refers to Babylon or the Babylonian area. The topography of the plain, which is where they settled, made for a perfect place for them to build a city and the tower. Now, humanity's settlement in this one place directly disobeyed God's command for them to spread out and settle the whole earth. Well, where is that? Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. Noah and his family get off the ark. Do you remember that? This is what God said. Genesis 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. And what? Fill the earth. Fill the earth. Now, what's interesting, the Hebrew word that Moses uses in verse 2 for settled... That word that we see in, in the English translation, verse 2, uh, says they journeyed, journeyed east, they found a plain in Shinar, and verse 2 says they settled there. The Hebrew word for settled is an antonym or the opposite of the, word, the Hebrew word for fill. So literally what's happened here is God told them when they got off the boat to disperse and fill, to go out on the earth and fill the face of the earth. What did they do? They got off the boat And they settled in one place. So already they're disobeying God's command for them to fill the earth. They were unified under one language. They were a unified people. And we would recognize, and I think it's a biblical concept, for us to be unified, right? The Bible tells us as believers that we're supposed to be unified. But not unified just to be unified, right? We're supposed to be unified around something or someone. I mean, think about it. Germany was unified around Hitler. And how did that work out for the world? It was horrific. Pop culture is unified around secularism. And therefore, as a result of that, Christians are are unwanted in 
proclaiming the gospel out in the world, right? We don't get a real positive response. If you were to go down tonight and stand on a corner in Duval Street and proclaim the gospel, you may have some fruit from that, but the, I think the majority of people would, would not be pleased with what you were saying. And I know that because I've seen it done down there. So God wants us to be unified, but not just for unity's sake. He wants us to be unified around something. God calls us to be unified around the Lord Jesus, around His Word, around the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Think about 1 Corinthians 1.10. It says, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree or be unified, and there is no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. So unified as a church, unified around the Word of God, around the will of God. Ephesians 4.3 says, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So God calls us to be unified around the Holy Spirit. Now the big, the wonderful blessing about that is that we all have the Holy Spirit, right? As born-again believers, He indwells us, and so we have the, the capability to be unified by God's Holy Spirit. Philippians 2.2 says, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. We unify around the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, and our love for one another and the Lord Jesus. So we are not to be unified just for unity's sake, which is really what the world does. We are to unify around our God, around His Word, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and our love for, for one another and for Him. All right, so the, uh, the whole of humanity has settled in the plain of Shinar, and they've decided to, to, to not fulfill God's will and his plan for them, and instead to make a place for themselves. And so that brings us to their ungodly plan, right? So the first step in an ungodly plan, in an unbiblical plan, is what? disobeying God, right? That's the first step. When we decide, I'm not going to do what God wants me to do, and instead I'm going to do this, where does that take us? Right down the wrong path, right? Right? Like in the opposite way that God wants us to go. And in fact, from an eternal perspective, walking in the opposite way of the direction of God's plan for you is, is always bad. It's always, always going to lead you to the wrong place, the wrong solution, uh, the wrong reward. So this is what, this is what humanity is going to do now. Um, in verses 3 and 4, we're going to see their ungodly plan. They said to one another, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, come let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So the, unif uh, the, 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 the whole of humanity, humanity is unified with one common language. Now they have a common purpose. Their common purpose, they will make bricks, they will build a city, and they will build a really, really tall tower. One scholar describes this, this building process. He says, the narrator provides his Hebrew audience an explanation for the building practices of the Babylonites. 
Unlike Mesopotamian structures, Israelite and Canaanite buildings were constructed of Palestine's rocks that were ubiquitous to the region. So differently, the, w- the way they built here in this thing, in, the, in this city, was they produced brickware for the construction, um, and that was common in Mesopotamia. So they used both mud bricks and, and baked or fired bricks uh, to build their monuments. And bricks were the foundation for the walls and the courts, and then they were set in asphalt. So this was a phenomenal way to build buildings, and what they were doing was pretty special. Now, do you remember how um, the, the Canaanites were known for building? And then, do you remember Nimrod? And what was he known for? He was known for being a builder of cities. And so he's tied into this uh, later. Um, the people of Babel now, they're all committed around this one purpose. Um, they're going to use their bricks. They're going to build a city. And then ultimately, they're going to build this huge tower. Now, the purpose of the tower, that's, that's what we need to figure out, right? Why did they want to build the city and this ginormous tower? What is um, their reason for doing this? What is the motive for building the tower? Because people build things throughout the Old Testament, right? I mean, they build altars, uh, they build cities, they build walls, they rebuild the temple, all those things. And many of those things are good. So what is it about this that makes it evil or wrong? Well, look at the text. Let's find out why did they build the tower. Look at the text. First, to make, what's it say? For ourselves a name. To make for ourselves a name. And then, they're going to make a name for themselves. Look at the text to avoid being scattered abroad over the face of the earth. So the first thing they're going to do is we're going to build this tower. Their motives for building the tower were to make a name for themselves. Well, who really should be the one whose name is made great? Gods, right? And what are they trying to do? Make a name for themselves. What they're doing is they're demonstrating their own power, their own authority, and their autonomy apart from God. Their first goal is to give, not, not give God glory, but to give themselves glory. To leave a legacy of their greatness for everyone to recognize after they're gone. Notice that they didn't build the tower to glorify God's name, but to make a name for themselves. Now, they they also build the tower for a second reason. To avoid being scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, remember, what did God command the Israelites to do in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, when they got off the boat? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. No, no, no. God said, be fruitful, multiply, and settle in the plain of Shinar. Is that what he said? No. What do you say? Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Now, I'm assuming that they have been fruitful and they multiplied based on our genealogical reports that we just studied. Instead of, instead of filling the earth, they've done the exact opposite of that and they've settled in one place. So the purpose of the tower is to help them not fulfill God's command for their lives. 
literally building this tower is so they could do the opposite of what God's called them to do. What we see here in this part of the text as we apply it to our lives is that ungodly, unbiblical plans are never, ever better than God's plan. Right? The struggle is, though, is sometimes they look like they're better, right? And to follow God's plan, more times than not, that requires for us to take a step of faith, right? It either doesn't look like it's what we're supposed to do, or it requires great sacrifice, or it requires some sort of commitment that requires short-term sacrifice uh, for a long-term or eternal benefit. So following the will of God's not always easy, but it's always what's best. How do we know that God's plan for us is always best? Well, it's really based on two things. It's based, one, on the nature and character of God. He's good, loving, gracious, just, omnipotent, omniscient. He's all-powerful. He knows everything all the time. And two, he loves us. So God can see the beginning and the end, right? And he knows all things in between. First of all, he has that knowledge. On top of that, he loves you. So when we understand God's plan, when we understand what God wants from us, we should also understand that that is the very best possible future for us. So man made three mistakes in, in, at Babel. First, God wanted them. Um, first, they settled here in the plain of Shinar in direct disobedience to the word of God. God wanted them to scatter and fill the earth, and instead they settled and stayed in one place. This mistake led to the next one to take steps to ensure that they wouldn't scatter around all the earth. And then that mistake led to the final one, to build a tower that would celebrate their greatness, their autonomy, their authority. So what we learn is oftentimes our disobedience of God has an exponential effect on our lives. Let me give you an example. I was watching a show a while back, and it was just one of these movies that just drives you crazy. The movie started with this guy offering these, like, small white lies to this family he had just met that he wanted to impress. So he started lying to them, just little small lies, right? It was a comedy, so it was funny. And his little lies became bigger lies, because the family started asking questions about his first lies. So they had to come up with more lies to cover up the first lie. And then by the end of the movie, his lies were so huge that the family felt like they didn't even know who he was because everything he told them about himself was just one giant lie. Now, that's humorous, but it also does illustrate <coughs> what happens in our lives when we deviate from God's path. When we deviate from his path, we're oftentimes required to take more steps outside of his will and his plan, right? And we think, I'm just going to do this, and then you realize, oh man, I'm, I'm in trouble. I've deviated from God's path. Let me just take a few more steps to try and fix this, and some more to try and fix this. And then before we know it, you know, we're so far away from his path and plan that we wouldn't recognize it if it slapped us in the face. 
Now what brings us back to that, and thankfully we have the opportunity to do that through our repentance, where God again awaits us to approach him with a repentant heart and also promises to receive us when we approach him and repent and are repentant of our sins. What we learn here first from the Babylonians is we need to trust and follow the Lord. Obeying him will lead to the best possible eternal future for us. Always, every single time. So, <clears throat> I want to invite you to look at verses 5 through 9 of this text in a little different way than maybe you have in the past. You see, God is going to take direct action in the lives of humanity right now. First, God responds to the actions of man. Verse 5 continues. It says, The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Now, Moses' language here is, it's important to recognize, what did Moses call humanity? Sons of who? Sons of men, right? Verse 5, Moses calls humanity sons of men, not sons of God, which is the traditional uh, label for God's people. It's a reminder that they are not God. And right now, they're not behaving as children of God. They're, they're behaving as children of men. They're, they're walking and deviating away from God's plan. This reminds us that no matter how impressive their tower, they are not and nor will they ever be God. It reminds us that no matter what they say or claim to know or be, they are at every moment completely and totally dependent on God for life. We get our opportunity to live and move and have our being from who? From God. He literally, through Jesus Christ, holds the universe and everything in it together. Check out Hebrews chapter 1. This is where we see God's grace. So, Oftentimes when we read this, this part of the text, it looks like God is judging the people. But I don't think that's the case. I think what God does next is an act of grace. And let me show you what he does. So instead of instantly destroying mankind after their disobedience, like if you've read Genesis and you've been in our studies the last few months, it kind of looks like mankind is on the same road that they were on before the flood. What were they like before the flood? Darlene said wretched. Let me see. I have a text. Genesis 6-5. I have this later in the sermon. I'm going to read it now. Genesis 6-5 are the moments leading up to the flood. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It kind of feels like mankind is like back on that road again of on the road to wickedness and turning away from God. However, God desires to see man walk with him and obey his commands and receive his blessing. So verse 6 continues. It says, the Lord said, behold, they are, are one people and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down 
and go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So all these people came from the, the same person, Noah, and his three sons. And by now they've created various families and tribes, but they all still see, are all still write, are all still speak uh, the same language. What God notices and says here is, what is the product or the fruit of their unity of having one language? Disobedience. They built a tower. They're disobeying God's call. They're trying to do things to make themselves great. They really have fallen into self-worship and self-reliance. Now, what's important here as well is, listen to what God says about this. Nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. This sounds like a good thing at first blush, right? Like, nothing's impossible for God, so we, we, we don't want to... We, don't, we always want to have possibility in front of us, and we teach our kids that you can do anything you put your mind to and all that, right? That's good. But what God is saying here, they've got one language. They're unified now under one purpose, and with this one language, what did they do? They fell into disobedience, right back on our path of sin. What God sees is if, if they continue with one language— they're going to continue on this path of unrighteousness. So God is going to intervene. And what he did at Babel was an act of grace to help mankind fulfill God's purpose and plan and receive God's blessing. So how did he do this? Look at verse 8 and 9. So the Lord God scattered them abroad from over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. So God miraculously causes the people groups to all have different languages. Consequently, there's confusion, and the people spread out. Now, what was God's command for the people when they got off the ark? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So by confusing their languages, what did the people do? They filled the earth. They began to fulfill God's command, God's plan for their life, and thus could receive God's blessing for following His will. And ultimately, God also destroyed the ungodly culture that had evolved at Babel. They couldn't understand each other, and so they separated. It's interesting. This great city receives an appropriate name, Babel. Taken from Hebrew, the Hebrew word Balal, which means confused. So check this out. The people built the city and a tower not to make the name of God great, but to make their own names great. And then what name did they get? confused. That was not a great name. The name that they received because of their stupidity ended up telling the whole world and their legacy that they left behind for us to read today is the word Babel. I think that's ironic. I think God has a sense of humor, don't you? 
Babel would not be the last great city to rise up in Mesopotamia. Almost all these cities in that region throughout the Old Testament would be pagan, um, ungodly cities that warred and caused trouble for the Israelites. An Israelite reading this passage in the shadow of some great pagan Mesopotamian city would be reminded of God's authority and God's purpose and plan. Those who seek and are those who obey him and seek his face and follow his path will receive his blessing. I remember um, when the girls were a little bit younger, um, we wanted to wash the truck. Actually, I wanted the truck washed and I appointed them to do it. And they were excited to get the hose out and the rags and all that stuff. And so I, you know, gave it all to them and I went in the house and did something else and, and came out. And um, what do you think I came out to? Three little girls, real young, appointed to wash the truck. What do you think they were doing when I came out of the house? They were fighting. Miss Alice, you got every answer, every one of my answers. They were fighting with, of course, they were fighting with the hose, slapping each other with the, the wash rags. The bucket of soap had long been knocked over. It was all over them. And I don't know that a speck of soap had actually gotten on the truck. Of course, that was hilarious. And, and what I did is sat down with them and said, all right, I want you guys to have fun, but we got to actually get some water and some soap on the truck. And, and I helped them, and we worked together, and, and we finished and fulfilled that purpose. Likewise, you know, the Lord has provided us with a purpose. But pop culture and the world that, that we live in really sort of beckons us away from that, doesn't it? It calls us not, not to do what God wants us to do and what the Word calls us to do. Instead, to do things like build a name for ourselves, uh, become known to people. Um, to achieve great things by the world's standards. But the Lord has provided for us a, a, a purpose, a plan, a mission. And as believers, it's articulated for us in Matthew 28. This is one of the last things Jesus said to his disciples that we also apply to our own lives. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, says this, And Jesus came up and spoke to them and saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That's our mission. Our mission isn't to go out and make a name for ourselves, to make our name great, to build great things so people remember us. Our mission is to make Jesus' name great. To tell people not about ourselves and our great accomplishments, but to tell people about Him. To train them to follow Him. And to teach them His Word. That's our mission. That's our purpose. And you know what? When we follow that mission, when we follow that purpose, great reward awaits us in heaven. Alright, three things in conclusion. I'll invite Brandon back up to take his place for our last song. Let's just do three things in response to what we saw the Babelites do. 
Let's unite around God's purpose as it is communicated in God's word. Let's let the word of God draw us near to each other to be the glue that holds us together. And let's do all things for the glory of God, not for our own glory, but for his. And finally, let's fulfill the mission of God, the Great Commission. We're going to just sing one more song together as we close, and then we'll finish our service with our birthdays and anniversaries, if we have any. But let me close in prayer, and then I'll invite you to stand and sing along with Brandon. Heavenly Father, thank you for this night you've given to us. Help us to follow your will and your way. Help us to recognize, Lord, that what you have for us is good and righteous, that the godly life is a life worth living. Help us to unify around your word and around your mission to proclaim the name of Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.